We find ourselves in a series called the Honor Challenge. And if you are in an Honor Challenge small group, this week we will be covering Titus chapter 2, talking about honoring our elders. Someone pulled out the bulletin this morning and said, this doesn't help me very much for my small group tomorrow night. It's blank, I know that. But fill it out, write down whatever you want today. I'd love for you to take notes as we go. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Titus. This morning we will look at chapters 1 and 2. And we will start by reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This morning my five-year-old prayed that I would have a good time teaching at church. So we're going to have a good time today. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, You, however, must teach what is appropriate for sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, as we look into the perfect law that gives freedom, we pray that we would find freedom in your words. Freedom to cling to Jesus and find growth there, freedom to allow you to transform us into your image, freedom to say no to bad things and yes to good things so that the world might see that you are in us and that you are real and that you transform people who come under your gracious authority. Help us to be a community of men and women and children who honor you and honor each other, who live as examples to younger folks and look up to the wisdom of older folks, that in all things we might live to honor you and in so doing, give a needy world a picture of your grace and your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. It takes a special person to bring light into a dark world. And by all accounts, Titus was set up to be that person on the island of Crete. Titus, we don't see a lot of him throughout the Bible, but if you read the epistles that Paul writes, you start seeing that Titus had a major role in the advance of the gospel and a major role in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
When Paul was in Jerusalem arguing about the future of the ministry to the Gentiles, Titus was there by his side. Paul sent Titus into the world ministering in Dalmatia, where the Dalmatians are from, so that's a big deal. Ministering in Corinth, in Asia Minor, all over the place, Titus was dispatched by the Apostle Paul to do mighty works of ministry. If you've ever mentored someone or had someone mentor you the way that Paul mentored Titus, you know that it's not just a relationship where you give tasks to someone, but a deep bond forms as you live life with one another. Paul had this deep love in his heart for Titus as he mentored him and raised him up. At one point, Paul was in Troas doing ministry, and God was opening up the door to do great things, and yet the apostle said, I had no peace of mind there because Titus wasn't there. And so he wrote to Corinth and said, I left Troas, went down to Macedonia because I wanted to find Titus. I wanted to be with him. We do ministry well together. Titus and Paul established a lot of ministry on this Greek island of Crete. And then Paul left him there to finish the work. So you can kind of feel the weight of emotion when Paul writes to Titus and says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left and finished. Titus would spend the rest of his life there on the island of Crete doing ministry apart from his mentor Paul. And so Paul writes in this letter to say, here's how to finish the work that we started. Crete wouldn't have been the worst of places to spend your life. It's a beautiful island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, full of olive trees and hills and hummus probably. Beautiful place. So Titus was banished to this terrible place to spend out his ministry life in the middle of the Mediterranean, full of Greek culture. And and yet Crete had one downside. It was full of Cretans. You ever heard the word Cretan? It comes from the island of Crete. And Paul reminds Titus that one of the Cretan philosophers had even coined the phrase, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Paul says to Titus, this saying is true. These are the people that you're working with. Crete had a reputation in the Greek world for being a place that was a little off the grid and and making some decisions that were unhealthy. Cretans were known as lovers of self. They had built a tomb on the island for the god Zeus and said, God is dead, we live for us now. And even though Zeus is not a a real God, that says a lot about a people who say, we don't need God, we have our own hearts, we have our own pleasures to seek after. The Cretans were known as people who would accumulate wealth for themselves. Crete, more than any place in all of the Greco-Roman culture, was a place where you could just amass fortune and amass land and land and land and land. And some people criticized the Cretans for, for just amassing so much wealth for themselves and never thinking, how much is enough? Crete was a place that was said money was not viewed as a necessity, but as something honorable to be obtained. And that was something that was uncommon in the world back then. Crete was said to be the only place in all of the world, in the entire world, that loved money the way that they did. The only place where money and accumulating wealth and being super, super rich had no negative connotation. 
In our culture, people who have a ton of money, we look upon them and we're jealous of them. You open People magazine, you think, man, I want a private plane. And I want a plane that will take me to the airport where my plane is. <laughs> I want a better car, and I want someone to drive that car while I sit in the back and get a foot massage or something, right? That was unheard of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when someone was that rich, people looked at them with disdain. said, what is wrong with you that you would amass that much for yourself and not help others? How much is enough? How much is too much? Why are you just accumulating, 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 consuming, consuming, consuming? And Crete was a place that was full of Cretans who lived like that. And Paul says, Titus, I, I put you on this island because I want you to finish building the churches in this place. It's a tough place to minister. It's kind of like when you tell people who aren't from around here that you live as a Christian in the Bay Area. They say, well, that's a beautiful place. I love to visit, but I don't know how you live as a Christian there. You know, it's different than the rest of the world. It seems like it would be harder to be a Christian in San Francisco or in the East Bay than it would, would be to be a Christian in Kansas or something. It just seems like it's a little bit of a different climate. People believe a, a lot of different things. There are people who believe different religious things, people who believe different lifestyle things, people believe different monetary things, people who are consuming different than the way that we as Christians, the Bible tells us to consume. And Titus had a similar struggle where he lived in a society where people were so after themselves and their own passions that it would be an uphill battle to finish the work that God had for him there. You know, God has work for each of us to do. Paul, Paul tells the church that God has prepared beforehand works that we might walk in them. That God has appointed the time and the place where each of us should live. And there's ministry to be had in our community. And there's ministry to be had at our workplace. There's, there's work to be done in our homes with our children and our families and our extended families. And sometimes it's difficult because the world wars against us. People don't want to hear the truth. People don't want to live like the Bible calls them to live. People don't want to love the Lord the way he calls them to love him. And sometimes it's that uphill battle. So Paul writes this letter and says, Titus, I want to tell you how to get started in taking the work that we began and bringing it to completion. If you were Titus, where would you start? What would be your first order of business on an island full of these pagans that believe different things, but these little communities in every city of Christ followers who, who are trying to love him and live for him, what would you do? Now, I have friends who plant churches, and I call them from time to time, and, and that's a hard work to go into a young church and build it up, build its foundation. And I ask them, well, where do you start? And some people say, well, I start with the children's ministry. That's the first thing you got to do. you got to have a place where the parents can drop off their kids because that's why people come to church, right? And so they launched this children's ministry. Some people are just trying to get a building built. They say, if, if I can just build a building, then there'll be a place for people to come. It stinks meeting in the back room of Walmart or whatever. We need a, a place with a cross and a sign and, a, and like blinking lights. We just, we need a place. And if we can just get a place to meet, then we can have a firm foundation of ministry. If you go to the bookstore and look up how to start a church, you'll probably find hundreds of different books with hundreds of different methodologies on how to establish a community of Christ followers, 
that's thriving. Paul tells Titus his first order of business is two words. Appoint elders. It says, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He says, go from city to city. Go from Christian community to Christian community and look for godly men who aren't consumed with the things of this world, who love their wives and children, who manage their households well and with character, who aren't drunks, who aren't violent, who aren't greedy, but they love the Lord and they love doing good. Look for those men who are examples in their homes and set them up in places of leadership in the churches. That's the most important starting point for the ministry that God has for you on Crete for the rest of your life. In the Old Testament, there's a proverb, Proverb 31. Have you ever read that? It's about a, a godly woman who devotes her life like 27 hours a day. It's more than the normal amount of hours in the day. That's why I said that. <laughs> to serving the Lord and serving her family. It says she wakes up before dawn. She goes to bed after everyone else has. Sounds like my wife so far. She makes clothes for her children, not my wife. <laughs> Maybe she gets good deals at Ross or something. I don't know how she does it. but She buys and sells real estate. Everyone calls her blessed. Her children love her. You think, who is this woman? And where is her husband? Right? This woman is working around the clock, and she's doing these things, and she's knitting clothes and cooking meals and selling real estate and making money and putting the kids to bed, and everyone says, she's wonderful. Proverbs 31 says that her husband is sitting at the city gates talking about how great she is. <laughs> and he chats with the elders there about his wonderful wife. You think, why are the elders sitting at the city gates? Why are these men hanging out and eating hummus while the wife is running all around town and flipping houses? <laughs> and it's easy to get disparaging about the men in that society, but, but really they were playing a critical role in the community. If you lived in an ancient city, security was very, very important. You didn't want a foreign power or evil people or false teachers to come into your city and light it on fire, to destroy it, to kidnap your kids, to burn down your temple. You didn't want any of those things to happen. And so the first thing you would do if you established a city is you would build walls around the city. Remember Nehemiah? In the book of Nehemiah, he found that the walls of Jerusalem had been burned down and he wept and he fasted and he sought the Lord and he said, I need to get back to my city and build the walls back up. The walls of a city were its protection. And yet if a city has walls with no openings, the people will just die inside. It's like a plant with no light. They need to build gates so that the people can leave and that commerce can come in. People need to go in and out of a city, and yet the gates <coughs> were the place. Excuse me for a second. <coughs> the gates were a place where the city was most vulnerable. So if you had an invading army, they could either try to climb the wall or they can waltz through the gate. If you had a false teacher who wanted to come in and destroy the religion of a city, he could either pole vault over the wall 
or tunnel under it or just waltz through the gate. And so what cities would do is they would take the godly men of the city who knew the truth, who knew right from wrong, who understood worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom, and they would post them at the gates and they would sit there and do two things. They would protect the people from evil and they would dispense justice for the community. The elders would sit at the city gates and when a false teacher would come in or a good teacher would come in, they'd interview the guy or they'd interview the girl and they'd say, what are you intending to do in our city? If evil people started walking towards them, they would close the gates and call the military. If there was a skirmish in their city and people were arguing about things, they would bring them to the gates before the elders and they would decide what is true and just and fair. The elders would sit at the gates and they would protect the people of God. In a lot of ways, the elders are the walls of the community. And Paul tells Titus, before you start building anything, set in place the men who will protect your community from harm. Because there were false teachers. And Paul talked about the Cretans, the evil brutes, the lazy gluttons, the liars. He talked about these communities of formerly Jewish pretending to be Christ followers who were going from church to church peddling false doctrine, trying to deceive whole households with their ministry. And Paul says, Titus, unless you have elders sitting at the gate to your community, these people will come in and destroy the churches before they get off the ground. And so get those men, those godly men who know the truth, who love their wives, who lead their families, who have self-control and discernment, and set them at the gates to protect the family of God. He tells Titus that being an elder is like being a dad, but for the church. He says an elder, more than anything else, should manage his own household well. When he tells that to Timothy in, the, in 1 Timothy, he says, For if an elder can't manage his own household, how will he manage the household of God? That God's family is a family. And so Paul says, look for men who lead their families, who protect their kids, who love their wives, who treat them right, who control themselves, who live for what is good, who are defending their family from harm and standing at the gates of their homes and establish them as men who could do the same thing for the church. Unfortunately, we live in a society where there aren't a ton of godly men. <laughs> Sometimes I get comments like that from the single ladies at our church. And unfortunately, fatherlessness is an epidemic. You read the news, you look at the stats, you watch what's happening, you see these generations of kids who are growing up without a dad, usually because the dad was a jerk and walked out. He didn't have the self-control, or he was violent, or he was greedy, or he was lovers of women, or money, or wine, or whatever it was, and he left, and these moms are trying their best to raise up these sons and raise up these daughters, but there's no man to protect them. And when, when I was a youth pastor, I'd get calls from single moms sometimes, and they'd say, I, I want to bring my children to your youth group because I want them to be part of God's family so they can get some examples of what godly older men look like. We want the count, yeah. 
So we want our daughter in, or I want my daughter in here because I want her to see what a, a godly man looks like so she can meet some of the men that are safe in our church who maybe work in the high school ministry or speak in the wherever it is. And, and I want her to see what that man looks like so she knows the kind of man she should look for. I want my son to be in a place where he's being mentored by godly men because unfortunately his dad's out of the picture and and I know that they need to find what that picture of godliness in a male looks like so that they can live lives that they have that protection or they have that self-control or they have that image that, that only godliness can provide. Paul says, the reason I left you in Crete is because I want the church to survive, and the way the church will survive is if godly men stand up and protect each other and protect the women and protect the children from theological and physical danger. And yet that's a very defensive strategy. It's very important. You've got to have the walls of the city, but Paul doesn't want Titus to merely have a church that's safe He wants him to have a church that does good, that has an offensive force, that can truly transform the Cretan culture. And so Paul doesn't stop with the eldership and say, build the walls, then hide inside. He says, after you establish these elders, I want to tell you what to teach all the people so that we can be a community that does the most good, that transforms the people around us, that lives in such a way that the community is changed forever. And he gives him two Offensive weapons, character, and mentoring. Is that interesting? He doesn't say, here's a great strategy for small groups, or, or here's a great series that you can do that will really bring the people in. He says, if you want to have a church that does good, where the community does not slander the Christians, but upholds them and reveres them and sees there's something different about them, you've got to train your people to be men and women of character and deploy them to train that to the younger generation. He says in chapter 2, you, however, as opposed to these false teachers, much teach what's appropriate for sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. The hard thing about a big church like ours is it's very easy to walk through your entire life and know a ton of people, but never know anyone that's not your age. You notice that? You go to junior high ministry, you love it, you get connected. Then you go to high school ministry with the high school kids. Then you go into college ministry. Then you go into young adults ministry. Then you go into young couples ministry. Then you go into young families ministry. Then you go into families ministry. Then you go to the Challengers ministry. Then you go to the 39ers ministry. Then you go to the kingdom of God. That becomes like. (laughs) 
that, that becomes the trajectory. And it's, and it's great because it's amazing to know people who are in your life stage. who can pray for you. It's great to have friends, lifelong friends that you met in junior high and you walk with them through your whole life. But the hard thing is, if that is your only connection in community, you don't get to experience that Titus 2 reality of older men and younger men and older women and younger women building one another up. That's why I love our gender ministries, our men's ministry and our women's ministry. If you go to Dawn Patrol or you go to Road Crew Men's Dinner or you go to the men's retreat, you will see a motley crew of men, (laughs) old men, young men, and everyone in between who are just thriving in life together. You see these third graders sitting around the table and just taking it all in. And you know that even though they're not taking notes on what all the old guys say, they're absorbing a worldview. They're seeing how older men talk. They're seeing what Christian guys talk about when they choose to get together. They see how men struggle in their relationship with their wives and yet still choose to love their wives and stick with them. You see how guys put their kids to bed at night and you learn, oh, that's how dads do it. You learn that thing by seeing those people of different generations working together. Men's ministry is a great place for men to stand up and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with and normalizing the struggles of life. Or, hey, here's where I accidentally succeeded. And normalizing that succeeding in character and loving your wife and family and being ethical at work is how you're supposed to be. And so these younger kids see that, and the older people get to pass their wisdom on to the younger. And the people who are right in the middle get to do both. It's a beautiful way for that to exist. Women's ministry does the same thing. I saw in the Women's Center, I was just in there for a second, that... They've got these postcards. They're starting a, a women's mentoring ministry. And in September, I think, they'll, they'll launch this thing where older women and younger women can pair up to learn how to live life together. It's a beautiful way for, like this passage says, older women to teach younger women, here's how to love your husband. Because husbands smell. And sometimes they're hard to love. <laughs> here's how to love your kids. Because some days you're going to want to just leave them at a bus stop somewhere. Here's how to allow your husband to protect us from from stuff that's going on in the community and not take over his leadership, but also not just sit there and let him do everything. Here's how to live in that balance of of being a godly woman, of loving people and serving people and doing good. And here's how to make clothes and flip houses and all that. (laughs) That that happens when, when men and women that are older and younger in God's family get to coexist. You know, a lot of times we talk about the destruction of family and families falling apart and divorce and all that kind of stuff. Aren't you glad that God provided the church as a family where we've got moms and dads and kids and cousins? And I mean, look around. This is our family reunion. And there's some weird people in here like me, right? (laughs) But it's a wonderful thing. And more than just being something that's very special, Paul tells Titus that, This family is how the world will see what God truly looks like. Isn't that cool? It's really easy to read this passage and think, okay, so I need to be a better person so that I can convince the people at work that Christianity is true. You know, I I need to stop drinking because I I don't want them to think that Jesus has no power. And it sounds a lot like, okay, work real hard and the world will accept you and they'll love Jesus. But, But that's not it at all. 
Paul says that all of this, this transformation he's talking about, building men of character and women of character and building up children into adults of character, all that is from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say work real hard to get better. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. That all of this is founded by the gospel of grace. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If you had godly parents who raised you up into being a man or a woman of character, you know that it wasn't because you worked real hard to become great. You know that you learned that in your household and you absorbed it. Paul said the same thing is true in the household of God. We aren't great people. You know that, right? We don't just work real hard and we pull ourselves up for our bootstraps and now we're great. It's because our Father in heaven is amazing. And he gave us his gospel. He sent his son to die and rise on our behalf. And as we cling to him and enter his family, we don't even know what's happening half the time, but we're starting to look more like our father. We start to have grace like our father had grace on us. We start to have compassion and love like our father had it on us. We start to let go of our resources and instead give it to those who need. We, we start to look more like our Father in heaven. His grace is what teaches us to say no to ungodly things because we learn that they're harmful for us. His grace is what teaches us to become men and women of character because we know that that is the best way to live and that it honors him when we live that way and shows the world what he is like. This morning, if God is speaking into your ear and nudging you to become a better dad or a better mom, or a better kid, or a better whatever it is, don't walk out of here and think, okay, I'm going to take what that voice says and do it. Walk out of here and say, I'm going to take the Father who spoke those words, and I'm going to cling to him. Jesus says, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you've ever tried to just become a better person on your own, and you failed and failed and failed and failed, Because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you truly want to become that man or that woman of character and and teach a generation how to image God in the way that they live and transform the culture, it's not just by working hard. It's by clinging to him. It's by spending time with your father and you'll become like him. Paul tells Titus that this is the reason I left you on Crete. And Paul was that father to Titus. He taught him what he knew. He dispatched him into ministry. He worked with him on creed and taught him the things and built up his character and said, now I want you to take this and teach the next generation. Teach these churches, establish elders and train them to have godly men and godly women who can make godly children for the next and the next and the next generation. Paul ends this by saying, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. It takes a special kind of person to transform a dark place with the power of light. Really the kind of person it takes is one who surrenders their life to Jesus and allows themselves to become more and more like him every day.
as we grow in our character and teach those around us and sharpen one another like iron does to iron, we can become men and women and children with strong character and a beautiful love for our Savior that's contagious and powerful in a dark world. Let's pray together that God would grow us into those sort of people. As we close in prayer this morning, there are some of us in here who maybe realize that we've been trying for a long time to become better people, or maybe we've been rotten people for a long time, and, and we need to see a change. Father, we pray for those folks that they wouldn't walk out of this room this morning wanting to try harder to be good, but that they would come to your son Jesus and find goodness there. That as they confess their sin to him, he would take it away, hurl it into the depths of the sea. And he would replace that unrighteousness with his righteousness. And place in them a new life, a new kind of life that starts in this moment and will never, ever end. We pray that for all of us. That we would be men and that we would be women and that we would be children who honor you in the way that we live. And devote our time and devote our lives and devote our efforts and our resources and our homes and our communities and everything that we have and everything that we do. We would devote those things to bringing honor to you. And that as we do that, that you would show the world around us that you are amazing and you are real. Jesus tells us that by this will the whole world know, all men will know that you love me if you love one another. Let us be men and women who love one another and train up the next generation in the wonderful deeds of the Lord. This morning, as the ushers come forward to receive our benevolent offering, we pray that you would stir in our hearts to give towards this effort, that we would become less like the Cretans and wherever we are and, and more like you in your generosity, that we wouldn't consider our resources as our own, but we would think of those in this community and in our local community who are less fortunate and that you would stir in our hearts to give generously so that others might find sustenance in their life. And we pray that as the church is the church and provides for its own and provides for its community and brings life through resources, that the world would see that we are a transformed people because we're starting to reflect your generosity in the way that we live and in even the priorities of our spending. Pray that you would guide us and grow us and help us to cling to you all the while. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.